Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we ask and pray that you may open us, that you may show us yourself, and that we may see a revelation of Jesus, and that it may be a beautiful one, but at the same time, one that encourages us, empowers us, and motivates us to change the power of the Spirit. May we not leave this place the same. May we leave this place different. And because of Jesus, we ask and pray this prayer in his precious name. Amen. Um, For those who have been to church for the previous weeks or so, would have noticed that we're preaching a, a series. We've been going through our discipleship process at church, which is Attracted to Jesus, which we preached on last year, and looked at a lot of overarching themes of Scripture. This year, we're kind of pausing a little bit and going to our next step, which is committed to Jesus. And I was thinking about commitment, and a book that really God impressed me to preach through is the book of Revelation, because the reason for me doing that is Revelation reveals the way in which God works, but he also reveals the way in which God works through people. And what we're doing is we're having a look at the history of God's people throughout the ages, and we're seeing lives of commitment towards Jesus and towards heaven. So for those who have joined us for the first time this year, we're up to Revelation chapter 3. So we've done the first two chapters. We're up to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going through the history of the churches. The history of the churches is basically the history of the Christian, um, the Christian movement from the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, the burgeoning early church, all the way through to where we are today. And we're kind of coming to the end of that. So we're getting closer and closer every single week that we're preaching on this. We're getting closer and closer to the time in which we are living today and the church in which we are a part of today. That's a good thing, but at the same time, it's also a bit of a challenging thing. If you come next week, you'll hear a message on a church by the name of Laodicea, which is us. Probably out of all the churches, it's the worst. But it's given the best promise, which is a message in itself. So come next week for that. So let's open up to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start reading the scriptures just here, and jump straight into it. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first three verses. The scriptures read this, it says this, these are the words we've read, they're the words of Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. For those who've just attended today and for those who haven't, on the screen you will see a brief, under, a brief revision of what we've looked at so far. We've looked at the church at Ephesus, which is the, the beginning of the Christian church. We looked at the church at Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. We then looked at the church at Pergamos, which was the compromising church. We then looked at Thyatira, which is the corrupt church. Today we're looking at the church of Sardis and the church of Philadelphia. Don't get too 
um, concerned about the numbers. I just went century to century to century. Okay? Um, it's just a brief approximate, brief estimate. So we're looking at the church in Sardis and the church in Philadelphia. These churches basically are representations of what the church was like at these appointed times in history. We're not talking about just churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, but rather we're talking about the reality of the church today and the reality of the church in times gone by. So we're looking at Sardis just here. And basically, when Jesus communicates with the church at Sardis, he says, you have a name, but you are what? You are dead. You have a name of Christianity. You have a name, and the name is followers of Jesus, but you are dead. Strengthen that which remains and watch. It's interesting when you have a look at the history of the church at Sardis or when you have a look at the history of this place called Sardis, this old town or this old city. It was in a fortified area. It was built on top of a, a, hilly, um, a hilly outlook, an acropolis. And it was very well fortified because of the environment in which it was built upon. I mean, if you're at the top of a hill and your city is there, you have a vantage point in which you can look out over the valleys and you can see when an enemy is coming. So you have the privilege, you have the great positive of looking out and scouring the locations to see if there's someone who's going to come and overthrow your city. This was Sardis. And it was a glorious city. It was a city of great privilege. But when you look at the history of Sardis, there's nothing there today but these ruins. And although they had a place of great glory and great privilege, it's now sunken into insignificance. And the reason for that is this. They were overconfident with what they had. They were on a hill. They were fortified. They were protected. So they thought that they were fine. And they did not watch as they should have. And the armies came up the valley. And two times they were overthrown by armies because they could not watch. Isn't that interesting? The church at Sardis is one who stopped watching. The church at Sardis is a, Sardis, is a church that rested upon its laurels, but it then fell. And it faded into significance. That's the history of Sardis here. You know, when you look around the world, there's a lot of places around the world. I'll show you a few more pictures of this place. All you see is just, you might be able to see that, you might not. That's actually, that's brickwork just up through here. And that's another example. It's just eroding away and soon it's going to fall down. Around the world, there have been many places which have been inhabited by people, but they have just been left desolate. When I was traveling around Tasmania with a good friend of mine, we were doing a tour of Tasmania in 2012. Actually, at the beginning of 2013, we were doing the whole entire, you know, we're just circumnavigating throughout the whole entire, um, you know, I was going to say country, but it's not a country, the whole entire state, you know. And as we were driving around, we were on the west coast, and we had just left Strawn, a place on the, the west coast, and we were driving up, and we came to a place called Zion. Has anyone heard of Zion before? Yeah? Who would go back to Zion if they had the chance? few people? I wasn't that impressed. So we left Strawn, and we are driving up. Now, the thing is this. I don't have anything against Tasmanians. But I really found it hard to find good vegetarian food there, particularly when I was out in the sticks. So here I am out in the sticks. We're driving through in our little Nissan Micra, 
the back seats are just piled up and we're just sitting in this thing just like, I swear that we could only get over like 80 kilometres an hour when we're going down the hill. And we roll into Zion and we are starving. Two blokes, absolutely starving, looking for food. So we're looking around, we drove up this, we actually drove through Zion and we were like, is that it? Do we, is there anywhere to eat here? So we turned around and we went back. You could basically drive through that city and it would take you like 30 seconds. You go through and you get out the other side. And we saw this place, takeaway shop. And we're just like, well, this is really the only option. So we thought we went in. We thought we'd go in. So my mate and myself, we go into this place at Zion and we're standing here. We're looking at the, um, the, the menu board and we're just like, oh, we can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that. Man, is there anything that we can eat? So we go up to the lady at the desk and we say, so do you have anything that's vegetarian? And she looks at us, you know, she's like, oh, I suppose you could make a chip sandwich. There's the bread, I'll make some chips for you and you can put it together. She wouldn't even make the chip sandwich for us, you know. And we're just like, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll do that. So we ordered the chips, we bought the bread, and it was just white bread, that was the only choice. So white bread, chip sandwich, some people are just like, man, that sounds awesome. You know, but when you're having that every single day, because it's like the only vegetarian option on the West Coast, you soon get sick of chips. And that's a pretty crazy thing for me to say because I love potato chips because I've got part Irish in me. So here I am, eating my chip sandwich. Actually, you know, before that, we go up and we grab the chips and the lady's just like, oh, it must be, it must be hard being vegetarian. Actually, before, before she offers us the chips, she's like, oh, does that mean you can have chicken? And it's like, no, no, I'm vegetarian. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah. We pick up the chips and she's just like, man, it must be really hard being vegetarian. And my mate, who was really, you know, just annoyed with the whole food experience thus far in the trip, he's just like, yeah, it is in this part. And I was a little bit just like, oh, don't say that, you know. But Zeehan used to be a place which was heavily populated because of the mining industry. It used to have a population equivalent to that of Hobart and equivalent to that of Launceston. But today you can drive through and you can drive through the city and get out to the other side and you can blink your eyes and you can almost miss it. You'd be lucky to count 700 people in that town today. I mean, it has faded from what it once was. The good times have passed, and it's dead. The church at Sardis was very, very similar. The good times had passed, and it was dead. You know, look at the scriptures again, because Jesus says some interesting words to the church at Sardis. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, and that you are alive, but you are dead. I mean, the question I want to ask you this morning, church, is what's the point of a name if you don't live up to that name? What word would we use to describe someone who professes something but doesn't live according to the light or the name that they have taken hold of? Hypocrite. Hypocrisy. Is there anything more repulsive than hypocrisy? There's not many more things that are repulsive than hypocrisy. Jesus saying, you are dead but you say that you are alive. You have taken my name, but you are misrepresenting me and who I am to the world around. And Jesus takes, issue, Jesus takes immense issue with people who misrepresent him. The issue that Jesus has with Antichrist is an issue because it misrepresents who he is. But it's not just the fact that they have taken Jesus' name and being hypocrites in regards to Jesus' name, but they have stopped doing something. And you find this in verse 3. 
He says, therefore, if you will not what? If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a what? As a thief. What's he talking about here? Watching, looking, and thief. Jesus is coming as a thief, and you should be watching or you should be looking. What event are we talking about here? The second coming. Now, the moment that you stop watching or looking for Jesus' coming is the very moment that spiritually you start to decline to the point of death. And the reason for being is this. We can get so focused in living for ourselves in the moment here and now that we, forgot, we forget realizing that there is a future beyond this life in which God wants us to live. If we focus with the temporal things right here, right now, we forget the reality that God has a place prepared for us, and not just for us, but the people that we rub shoulders with each and every day. Jesus isn't saying here that I want you to go sit on a rocky precipice and I want you to look to the skies and I want you to wait there until I come. How do we get ready? How do we watch? How do we look for the second coming of Jesus? It's not buying a whole heap of nut meat and storing it in your basement. To wait and to watch for Jesus coming. John Wesley was questioned one day. Someone came up to him and said, Well, if Jesus is coming tomorrow, would you live your life any differently? Do you know what John Wesley said? He said, I live my life every day in preparation to meet my king. How do you watch? How do you look? How do you wait for the coming of Jesus? Will you get ready for it today? You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus today. You study his word today. You pray to him. You have a relationship with Jesus now. And when Jesus says he's coming as a thief, why does he say that he's coming as a thief? If Jesus broadcasted it to everyone here that he was coming tomorrow, how many people would get ready for the wrong reasons? How many people will get ready for the wrong reasons? If it went out on news.com.au, Jesus is coming tomorrow, the whole world then gets ready because of fear. Is fear a good motivating factor? Is fear a lasting motivating factor? Jesus wants our motives to be sincere and pure, and he wants us to make a decision based upon love. That's why Jesus says, no man knows the time nor the hour, because he wants you to make your decision today. He doesn't want you to make a decision because of the things that you get, but he wants you to make a decision because he's enough, and he's always been enough. Turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 13. Jesus emphasizes this again. This whole concept of Jesus coming as a thief. Mark chapter 13. And when you guys are there, just say amen so I know when to start reading. You might have to wait for me. Mark chapter 13, almost there. And verses 35 to 37. The scriptures read this. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And look what he says in verse 37. He says, and what I say to you, I say to all. What's the word? Watch. Are you guys watching for the second coming? This week, this is my challenge. It's a challenge for me as much as everyone here. How many times did you think about the second coming of Jesus? Jesus says, watch. He says, keep it ever before you. This world is not your home. 
This world is not your home. And the problem with the church in Sardis, it, it was dead because it forgot to watch. It forgot to look. It forgot to focus on the reality that was always should have been before it. You know, my challenge for you, church, is if you are not watching, if you're not waiting for the second coming of Jesus, spiritual decline, not may come, it will come. Jesus, watch. Keep your eyes on me. The history of the church here in the time of Sardis was post-Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther had come and he went to the door of the church in Wittenberg and he'd nailed his 95 theses to the door. People followed Martin Luther. John Calvin came up around the same time. People followed John Calvin. You know, Jerome and Huss a few years before, and the list goes on. All these mighty men and women of God who stood for truth and declared it, they had come on the scene and they had gone off the scene. And there is always a tendency, if you are following people instead of God's word, that when they leave or when they pass, you set up a banner around that person and you progress no further forward. So Martin Luther is now in the grave, so guess what they started to do? They said, well, let's have a look at Martin Luther's books and let's make a creed up about Martin Luther's writings. And let's write commentaries and books on what Martin Luther has said. So all these books are circulating throughout Europe and throughout the Protestant world and they are books about the Reformers and what the Reformers have said and what the Reformers were done and what right theology is. But I want to tell you something. Although those books are awesome, why would you go to a barren stream when you have the springs of living water? Why would you spend the majority of your time reading books by godly Christian men, which we should, but neglect the reading of the word of God? If God's word is put on a shelf for someone else's understanding, then I am only robbing myself of what God wants to give me. And as Martin Luther was laid in the grave and as John Calvin was laid in the grave and as all these men were laid in the graves, their books were circulated and the scriptures were kind of forgotten of because their writings were preeminent. And because of that, things such as rationalism came in. Rationalizing the word of God to one's own secular mindset. And the Antichrist at the time introduced new understandings of prophecy. The counter-reformation. Prophecy was either all fulfilled in the past or prophecy will be fulfilled in the future when Jesus goes, when the Antichrist comes, sorry, and he sits in Jerusalem for three and a half years. That's Jesuit theology. So, I mean, Satan combated the Protestant Reformation by bringing them back. They were charging the Antichrist of the day, saying they hold to traditions instead of the word of God. But they were doing the same thing a couple of centuries later. Isn't it crazy that our strengths can sometimes become our weaknesses? But their problem was that they were dead. But the good news is with, with God is this. No one is too far from God. Let's have a read. Let's go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. I want to show you this awesome promise that's given to this church which appears to be dead. In verses 4, 5, and 6, the scriptures read this. You know, where Jesus says always hope, isn't there? There's always hope. No matter how terrible your situation may be with Jesus, there is always hope. Verses 4, 5, and 6, Jesus says this. 
You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, who shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know if you caught that, but when Jesus gives the promise to this church who is dead, he says, I will not blot your name out of what? The book of what? The book of life. Isn't it interesting that the problem of the church was a problem of death and Jesus says, you will have life, eternal life, if you hold to my words. The very remedy for the church of God when it's in spiritual death and spiritual decline has always been the word of God. Has always been God's word. You know, I'm reminded of a story. And you guys would know this story. Jesus shared this story in Luke chapter 15. There's a young man. And the young man gets kind of sick of his father's household. So he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, give me the share that I deserve. Give me my inheritance now. In other words, Dad, I wish that you were dead. The father divides his livelihood, gives the inheritance to the youngest son. The son then goes into a faraway land as far from his father as he could go. And he lives his life in riotous living. A famine sweeps through the land. And where does the son find himself? In the piggery. He's gone from the height of popularity and the height of prestige to the pig pen. And he's sitting there feeding the pigs and the owner of the pigs esteems the pigs more than him. And he looks at what the pigs are eating. He's thinking, man, I wish I could have the privilege of those pigs and eat what they're eating. I don't know about you, but when I feed my cat in the morning, I don't say, oh man, I'm so jealous, kitty cat. Can we swap? That's what he wanted to do. And then he comes to his senses and he says, you know what? The servants in my father's home have food and food to spare. And here I am in filth and in hunger. You know what? I'm going to go back home and I'm going to prepare a speech. And I'm going to say, Father, just make me a servant. So he packs up. Well, he doesn't pack up anything because he doesn't have anything. The clothes on his back. And he goes to his father's home. And as he comes around the final bend and as he sees his father's residence and his father sees him, the father drops everything that he's doing and he runs towards the son and embraces his filth. And this is the picture of God, church. He takes you. He takes you. And he embraces you near to himself. The smell, the, the, the stench and the filth gets on the father's clothes. And he takes the son. And I just love what the father says. Look at what he says. This, my son, was what? He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to be merry. And isn't this what we see at the church at Sardis? They were dead, but with the power of God, Jesus can resurrect any person from whatever situation they find themselves in, spiritually. You may perceive yourself to be as one who is dead. 
But through the power of God, he can resurrect you. He can bring you back to life out of that situation. That's the power of God, and it's the power of God alone. If he's done it for him, if he's done it for me, and if he's done it for a number of you out there, then he can certainly do it for you. He's a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, and the list goes on. And the father looks at his son, and he looks at what his son's wearing. And do you know what he says? He says, if you're going to be my son, you're going to have to wear what a son wears. Hey, guys, go get the best clothes. Now, let me ask you this question. Who usually wore the best clothes in the house? Wouldn't it be the owner of the house? So the father says, go and get my best clothes and give them to my son who was dead and who was alive, who was lost and who is found. You may have come to church today lost, but you can leave church today found. You may have come to church dead, but you can leave church alive. And I'm not talking about physical death, obviously. We might have a physical resurrection on our hands here. I'm talking about spiritual death. If you are spiritually dead, you can leave this place spiritually alive, made alive in Christ. Go home, read Ephesians chapter 2. Read that chapter. You know, how does God revive? When Jesus introduces himself to the church at Sardis, he says that he has the seven stars in his hand. And he also says that he has the seven spirits of God, which is the Holy Spirit. But what are the seven stars of God? In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, the Bible tells us, it tells us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angel is also a word for messenger. God has messengers who proclaim his word. Does it ever confuse you sometimes? Or do you ever think, man, why does God... Speak, or why does God use people? You ever wondered that? I mean, God has all the resources in all of heaven. He has an entourage of angels that he can use to proclaim his message, but he doesn't use angels, he uses us. If I was an angel, I would be very, very concerned with the way God does it. Because I could see that there are angels in heaven and they are ministering spirits, yes, but I can tell you they would do a far better job than me. Do you reckon an angel would do a better job than you? I think we could all raise our hands and say, yeah, they probably would. But God uses us because it's the process by which we experience the goodness of heaven. It's the process by which you experience the salvation that God has. You know, I want to share with you a story in the Old Testament, and it would be a familiar story for some of you. In the book of Ezekiel, this is how God brings to life that which was dead. Ezekiel chapter 37. When someone gets there, just say amen and we'll start reading. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 1. The seven stars or the seven messengers who proclaim God's message to his people are in the hand of God. In other words, it's God's message and God gives the message through his people. It's the word of God. In Ezekiel chapter 37, is everyone there? And in verse 1, look at what the scriptures say. The hand of the Lord came upon me. The hand of the Lord. 
Okay, God's messengers are always in his hands. And brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley and it was full of bones. Now bones are there. Well, if you see bones, that thing that is now bones used to be what? It used to be alive. And as Ezekiel looks out over the valley, he sees bones. In other words, he's seeing a vast amount of things that used to be living, but now they're what? They're dead. And it appears to be hopeless because when something's dead, it's dead. But jump down to verse 4 for us. This is what God says to the messenger. He says, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's what the messengers of God do. They point people to the scriptures, not dry and empty streams that cannot satisfy the thirsting soul. But they point people to the word of God, which never has failed and never will fail. Here's the word of the Lord. And you jump down into verse 10. You can read this whole story. It's an awesome story. And in verse 10, we find that the faithful messenger does what the faithful messenger does. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. When God calls you to do something, sometimes it appears to be foolish. So here's Ezekiel standing, looking over the valley and it's dead, it's dry bones. And God says, speak to them. I mean, well, they can't hear you because they're dead. God says, speak to them, share the words that I would have you share to them. It may seem a hopeless case and a lost cause, but when God calls you to speak, you speak. You proclaim what he wants you to share at work, at home, with your family, at school. If God impresses you to say something, you say something. And God's word never returns to him void. The faithful prophet just speaks. He has no power to raise the dead to life again. There's no power in his words. But when his words are combined with the spirit of God, God does his mysterious work. The word here for breath in the Hebrew is a word called ruach. It means spirit, breath, or the breath of life. God is the only one who can bring someone who was dead to be someone who is alive. God has a monopoly on that. That's his work. We don't convert, God does. So what's the whole point of this story in Ezekiel? And what's the whole point of this church which was dead, but this church that now becomes alive? The answer is this. It's very, very simple. When you hear the words of God, or when you share the words of God, you may think that you have done nothing. But when you leave that place, the Spirit of God chips away and chips away and chips away and speaks and brings the word of life and then brings that person to life. That's the work of God. He just calls you to be faithful. You know what the greatest miracle in this world is? I mean, if there was someone who had died today up the front, if I got really stressed with my sermon and something happened to me and then... Gary Cherry comes up the front and brings me back to life again. Would you guys be amazed? Should you be amazed? Man, I'd be super stoked if Gary could do that, if that happened to me. But you know what? There's a greater miracle than that. 
It's not bringing the dead to life again. It's bringing the spiritually dead to spiritual life again. Because that's a work that God and God alone can do. Just as bringing the physical life to death, he's going to do that at the end anyways. But when he brings someone who was hardened in sin into a saving knowledge with Jesus, that is the greatest miracle that can ever be witnessed. And that is a miracle in which the church, you, have been called to participate in. Companionship with heaven. Look at what it says in the book of evangelism here. The conversion of the human soul is of no little consequence. It is the greatest miracle performed by divine power. Although we might be impressed if Gary can raise me to life again, you know what's even more amazing? When a sinner finds Jesus and they give their life to Jesus, hardened in sin, they see the saving grace, they see the windows of heaven open to them, and they say, that is my Lord, that is my Savior, and he has saved me from the pit of sin. And why am I emotional with that? Because it happened to me. I know what I was, and you may know what you were, but it didn't change the way that he felt towards you. He pursued you to the end. I love seeing conversions. You know, I don't want to point this person out, but I just want... No, I'm not going to say anything. Okay. Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, as we finish off this church just here. Revelation chapter 3. Sorry am I getting so involved in this. I just love this. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus says something awesome. He says, at the end of verse 5, he says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You know what would just thrill my soul? To know that right now in heaven, Jesus isn't ashamed of me. That Jesus is willing to confess my name before the whole host of heaven. Do you reckon that would just be an awesome privilege? Imagine that Jesus would profess your own name before heaven, saying, yes, that is my child. What an awesome thing. You don't want to really spend time with people. You don't want to confess somebody's name if you're embarrassed of them. Now, when I was um, in grade 10, a good friend of mine who went to Tweed Valley Adventist College invited me to her formal. But she invited me with another one of my friends, my best mate. And when you had both of us together, there was trouble. And I don't think she realized what she was in for. Both of her friends, which were pretty reckless at the best of times, together at her formal in front of all her friends from the school, in which they don't really know, so they can just have fun and be stupid, was probably not a good decision on her behalf. And combine that with a camera that we had, we would go around as everyone was getting photos and we would be taking silly photos and being silly. And I just remember the look of terror on her face because she was embarrassed by us. She was completely embarrassed. And I would have been too. And you may have someone in your family that you get a little bit embarrassed by. You may be that person in your family by which people, um, people are probably thinking that of you. But here I was, and my mum who's here today, you know, she could probably say, yeah, there were probably times that I was embarrassed about Ashley. But when Jesus says he's not ashamed, he's not embarrassed about you, what a high honour that is. 
In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 11, look at this. I'm just going to read the underline. It says, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed of you. I want you to take that verse and I want you to claim it this week. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers or his sisters or his sons or his daughters. It's awesome. Back in Revelation, I want to jump to the next the next church here. Let's read verses 7 to 10. So we go from the history of the church of Sardis to the church of Philadelphia. The scriptures read here, we're going to read verses 7 to 10. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to death those who dwell on the earth. You know, it's very intriguing that when you have a look at the seven churches which we've been going through, Jesus introduces every single time as he talks to the church, he says one thing, I know your what? Works. I know your works. I know your works. Seven times he says that. And I think sometimes works get a bad rap. Sometimes we think that works don't make as much of a difference as what we would like to make it out to be. But in this here, and throughout all scripture, the Bible says, particularly in the book of James, he says, you say that you have faith, show me your works. Because your works back up your faith. You know, and I think the misunderstanding for a lot of the time is because when people read the, the, the writings of Paul, Paul's talking about the life and the works before conversion. James is looking post-conversion. Your fruits show your faith. Works don't save, but they show that you have been saved. And Jesus comes and says, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works, because your works are important. Not that they are like a report card where you say, God, how good did I go? And Jesus is like, yeah, you get a good golden star. But rather Jesus is saying, hey, your works are a revelation, not just to me, because I see the hidden motives of the heart, but they're a revelation to you where you are. The Church of Philadelphia was a period of church history from the 1700s you know, to the mid-1800s. Um, you see a picture just here on the screen. The Church of Philadelphia was a, was a, or the region of Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia was a city of significance, a city of influence. It was kind of at the crossroads where it would promote the Greek tongue and the Greek philosophy and thought to the world. It had an influence. It was a missional city for the wrong reasons. The Church of Philadelphia was an extremely evangelistic missional church. You know, I just have to mention a few names here. John Wesley and George Whitfield. Has anyone heard of those names before? 
mighty men and women of God went out and they shared the message of God. I'll share with you a funny story from George Whitfield. He would actually just, he'd like have a little pop-up pulpit. Not literally, but he would go somewhere and he'd just start preaching. That would be terrifying. And he wouldn't go to the places like church and preach. He would go to the race courses where people were gambling and he would preach. There's one account where I was reading where he would go to this race course at 6 o'clock in the morning and he would start preaching. And people gave their lives to Jesus as he preached on the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. He's like, oh, that went well. So he went back again at 10 o'clock and he started to preach. They didn't like it at 10 o'clock because more people were there. And they started to throw cabbages and tomatoes. And I was reading this account. They even threw dead cats at him. I mean, where does someone find a dead cat? But this was a common thing. They would throw pieces of dead cats at them. Just strange. Like they just, oh, I have some cat in my pocket. Take that. And they would throw them at these men as they would preach, but it wouldn't stop them. Many times their lives would you know, be threatened, but it's like the blows would miss them. God was protecting them as they were sharing the word of God. So he went back at 10, he was abused at 10. He went at 12, he was abused again. And the last time he went back and there were kids who had been motivated by their parents to throw stones at him. And the young kids were listening. Now we're talking about kids who are like 6, 7, 8. And they're standing there with the rocks in their hand and they're listening to a preacher preach. And the rocks just fall out of their hands and they just start weeping. These are kids. Martin Luther says the strength of the preacher is if you can keep the attention of the kids and I think I fail at that. But here's this man who was preaching and the kids were even listening and giving their lives to Jesus. We see missionary endeavors spreading across the globe. This was an intensely missional period in the church's history but they still had a problem the problem is that they had internal opposition the synagogue of satan or those who say they are jews but they are not isn't it interesting that sometimes the greatest conflict that the church experiences is conflict from within rather than conflict from without you know it's interesting that sometimes when people speak to me they seem sometimes to focus on all the things that are wrong instead of all the things that are going right. And you may know someone who's so quick to be critical of something or someone and they forget that in doing that work, they are actually doing the work of the evil one. It is so easy to be critical. And a critical spirit and a critical nature isn't a godly spirit or a godly nature. If you start to feel critical towards someone or something or a way that something is done, then I would encourage you to repent of those things and do not say it because it doesn't edify yourself and it doesn't edify them. Leave it there. And if there's something critical that needs to be spoken of, come and have a chat to me, but I'm not pointing anyone out here, but if anyone comes and is just critical every single time, now I said this up the front, I'll be like, did you listen to that sermon? A critical nature is a crippling spirit, a crippling nature. And the opposition is from within the church. Jesus says that I have opened a door and I have power to open a door that no man can shut. When you look throughout the scriptures, there's a few references here to doors. You know, the first reference that we find, you know, in the New Testament about a door is a door of salvation. 
You know, when Jesus says, I am the door, he who enters by me will be saved. This was a time in church history where salvation went forward as people preached. Another time we see an open door is in prayer when Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the what? The door will be opened. And who's the only one that has the power to open those doors? Don't say, you open the door, but I will open the door. Um, An open door, we see it in relationship. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and he's inviting us into a deeper experience with him. Mission in the book of Acts, they're praying for the Gentile world, and God comes and reveals to them that he's opened a door to go to the Gentiles. And in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19, we see that a door opens in heaven as Jesus finishes up his work, his ministry, before he comes to earth. Now, it's very, very interesting to me, as you look at a lot of the writings around this period of time from a lot of prophetic thinkers, and I'm not talking about the early Adventist believers. I'm talking about the people who lived in Europe. They came to the realization that something stupendous was about to happen on earth and that Jesus was about to do something real, really awesome. They studied the book of Daniel. They studied the book of Revelation. They were in the midst of Antichrist. They saw the persecution from Antichrist. They knew what they were talking about. They were more acquainted with the scriptures than what I am today, men of thought and men of learning. And they came to this chapter in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, and they read read these writings from Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. We're not talking about Daniel chapter 1 or Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 3 or 4, 5, 6 or 7. There's only one chapter where you see that there is a ceiling and that's Daniel chapter 8. You know, through my studies, I've read through the, the history of the early church from the time of Jesus all the way through to the new world. What I find is there's so much commentary on Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. But then they kind of skip over Daniel chapter 8. But then we come to the 1600s and there is intentional focus on Daniel chapter 8. Because the prophecy is being fulfilled that at the time of the end, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. A focus will come about the prophecies of scripture, the word of the Lord. And revival swept the land because of it. Because whenever God's word is preached... And whenever the Spirit of God is present, conversions take place. Has anyone ever heard of a man by the name of Sir Isaac Newton? I don't know if the apple fell on him or it fell next to him. But I know that he was a very smart man. This is what he says about Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. He says, If the general preaching of the gospel be approaching, it is to us and our posterity that those words mainly belong. Has anyone ever had a look at what this dude believed? He believes that the starting date, the starting date for the 400, the 70 week prophecy was 457 BC. He believed that before the end, before Jesus comes, there would be a restoration of truth that had been lost throughout the Dark Ages. He believed that before the end would come, there would be a high priestly work of Jesus. 
hence outlined by the lampstands, etc., etc. And he goes and he, is, he explicitly talks about the day of atonement. Isn't that interesting? And it wasn't just him. Another man, he said, you know what? Let's connect. And this was before William Miller, and this was in Europe. This was in the 1700s. And he said this, I think that the 490-70-week prophecy is connected to the 2,300-day prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. And they start, he said, in 453 BC, and he extended all this through to 1847. Another man gave another date, and he says the 2,300-day prophecy is fulfilled in 1880. And there were numerous people who were saying this. This wasn't just an Adventist experience in America in the early 1800s. This wasn't just one man who wasn't even a seasoned theologian, who didn't read all the literary works of the time, and who only had his concordance. These were many, many people motivated by the Spirit of God who went forward. They understood what they were studying, and they were more seasoned in the Scriptures than many of us. They knew what they were talking about. A door had opened for missionary endeavors. But a door had also opened where they could see Jesus' ministry in the most holy place. Powerful stuff. And I love what Jesus says to this church as we wrap this up. Verses 11, 12 to 13. He says, Behold, I am coming what? Now, I know that we read those texts and we're just like, Man, Jesus, you say you're coming quickly, but... I don't know if that's my time or your time. You're coming quickly. It doesn't seem like it's quick enough. But he's coming quickly, he says. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. What a privilege. What a privilege to have the name of God. And that's the privilege he extends towards this church. Remember what I said earlier. I said you can't confess somebody's name if you're ashamed of them. Jesus isn't ashamed of you if you're not ashamed of him. You know, if God's message is so important, if God's message is so important to us, we can do two things with God's message. We can hinder it, or we could advance it. We could share it, or we could stop it. The choice comes down to the individual. The question I want to ask you this morning is this. Who are you? What spirit do you have? Do you have a spirit of missionary endeavor to share the message of a dying Savior who died for the sins of humanity and who rose again and gives us the opportunity of eternal life? Is that your message? Is that your mission? Or is it like those in the text, the problem of within, who discounted the message, who discounted the calling? And who cast contempt on that which God would have them to share. Because at the end of the day, church, God's message will go forward with you or without you. 
the train's leaving, it's our privilege to get on board. It's our privilege to get on board. In closing, I want to share with you guys a story. My grandfather, he hasn't preached many sermons, but he would always tell me of the one sermon he did preach. It's kind of like, you know, when I would sit down and I would talk to him, you know, it's kind of like um, you turn on the TV or whatever and there's just reruns. It just felt like this was a rerun which just perpetually happened. He just liked to share the good old days and how he was asked to go and preach at Armadale. And he went and he started preaching at Armadale and he was preparing his sermon. He was preaching from the pulpit. And you know, as he finished his sermon, as he walked down the, um, the, the aisle or whatever that thing's called, one of his mates said, you slayed him in the aisles. He'd always tell me that story, you slayed him in the aisles. You know, I'm just like, I don't know if that story is more about you or God's word, Grandpa. But he just loved to share it. Particularly when I started preaching. And he would always share with me a story that he shared at the end of his sermon. And it's actually a story that my dad has never forgotten. Because I suppose that he saw the reruns that my grandfather would always give me. He'd always relate the story to his children. And it's a story about a poem called The Touch of the Master's Hand. Has anyone heard of that? Basically, I'm not going to sing the song to you or quote the poem to you, but basically the story runs like this. There was an auction of a man's estate. And all these things were being sold. And there was this old, crusty violin up the front. And that was one of the items which was going to be sold. And as the auctioneer goes to auction the specific items, he comes to the violin. And the attendant holds up the violin. It's crusty. It's dusty. It's not even tuned. As he holds it up, he says, this violin, who wants to start bidding on this violin? Do you think anyone's going to buy a crusty old violin? No one. No one raises the price. No one even gives a bidding price. Nobody wants it. They're just like, come on, let's go to the next things. Because this man was rich. And after an awkward silence, you know, I actually love awkward silences. I think they're really good. Particularly when you're studying with young people. We talked about that last night with young people. That awkward silence. This man gets up from the back of the room and he comes forward and he has a cloth and he dusts off the violin. He tunes it up a little bit. He puts it to his chin and he plays such a, be- such a beautiful melody that everyone in the room just looking at this violin. And then the auctioneer says, okay, who wants to start the bidding? 100, 200, 300. And it sells for an exorbitant price. And the question is this at the end. What makes the difference? It's the touch of a master's hand. You know what, church? We've been given a mission. We've been given a message. We've been given words to speak. But if we have not the Spirit of God, we're just that old, croaky violin. What makes the difference? It's the touch of a master's hand. You have something to share because you have a unique personality, which means you have a unique witness that only you can give to this dying world. Don't deprive this world of your unique story that only you can give. The angels can't give it. Only you can give that story. Jesus can resurrect. Two learning points. Jesus can resurrect the most lifeless soul, the most barren spirit. He can bring them forth as a storm that sweeps through a valley and brings new life to a drought-stricken land. 
and you are the only person who can take your crown. So much of the time we focus on individuals and say, they've done this to me or they've offended me or they haven't done this for me or I heard them saying this, etc., etc., etc. And we allow people to rob us of our Christian experience. They aren't responsible for taking your crown. Only you are responsible for taking your crown because it's a choice that you make. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you are true and faithful. And that the gospel message that started with great power will finish with even greater power. We thank you that we have the privilege to open our mouths and to speak the word of life. But Father, we pray that we may know the message before we share it, that we may share the right message. But Father, If we don't feel confident with that, we pray that you may use us in spite of ourselves, that we may be messengers in your hand under your control, and that your spirit may do the rest. May you use us, Father, in your vineyard, we ask. And Father, not just that, may we appreciate your message, the message in all of its glory. And may we be faithful stewards of that in which we have. Father, I pray for all of us here today, for those who are feeling spiritually as if they're languishing, I pray that you may bring new life to them. For those, Father, who are struggling, I pray that you may open up new doors in their life, doors of salvation and doors of open, answered prayers. Father, I pray that you may do what you alone can do. And Father, I ask and I plead with you that this day, those dry bones may live. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.